0: All right, hello everyone. Thank you so much for attending our Webex event today. My name is Kevin Navratel and I'm the Democracy Commitment Coordinator at Moraine Valley. And one of my responsibilities is to try to plan events to promote civic literacy. Uh, This semester we've uh, focused on some of the concerning trends in American politics, particularly the rise of political polarization, extremism, belief in conspiracy theories, and distrust in government to name a few. Um, We believe a critical piece to understanding these challenges is the role of the media and information literacy to help restore facts, truth, and trust. Thankfully, I'm joined by two awesome colleagues today, Communication and Journalism Professor Lisa Couch and Information Literacy Librarian Tish Hayes. And I want to thank them for, for participating today in this important event and helping us understand the role of information the role of the information ecosystem so thank you tish and thank you lisa thanks,
1: thanks for having us, us. yeah
0: let's do it i let everyone know in the in the chat function that um, if you have questions our panel members have agreed to take questions um, throughout um, today's conversation so um, it's a pretty informal um, format so um, they're, they have a plan of what they would like to talk about. But as questions come in, we'd be happy to take those questions. So thank you again for attending today.
1: Yeah, Thanks for coming. So, um, so we just jump right in. Sure. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're talking about um, this whole idea of blaming the media, which, you know, is a pretty common thing. I mean, people love to blame the media for all of society's ills, I think. Um, and, you know, I think Tish and I both sort of cringe when we hear people refer to the media, um, because, you know, it's, it can encompass so many different things, right?
2: It's... Right, I just, you know, the media, like you just said, uh, is kind of a scapegoat and it's easy to just be mad at the media, Um, but if we don't tease apart like who the media is, what the media is, then I don't know, it doesn't doesn't help us solve any of the problems that the media is causing either.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, when I hear my students refer to the media, you know, um, I always have to stop and ask them, you know, are you talking about the news media? Are you talking about, you know, advertising movies social media um, we tend to lump all of that in together um, and and i think it's hard to then say you know if we if we just sort of generally blame the media for things um, you know then as you said it's hard to kind of um get closer to solutions um, and so we, we sort of have to define um what we mean by it um, and Um, One thing I came across that I thought was interesting was that um, the term the media um, or the calling the press the media actually started long before Donald Trump. Um, and the things that we currently are, are wrestling with, um, it was the Nixon administration that um, decided to purposely call it the media because they felt like it sounded more manipulative, more Madison Avenue, um, whereas the press had connotations of, you know, freedom of the press and the Constitution and you know, democracy. So um, it was a very deliberate. Um, change that happened, you know, several decades ago. Um, And, um, but I think, you know, over the over time, people have really kind of lost track of what the media's role is. Um, And, you know, when I decided to major in journalism, I was inspired by, you know, probably by movies and TV, um, you know, journalists who were sort of fighting for truth and, you know, going out and uncovering corruption and, you know, uh, making a difference. And um, and I think we've sort of lost that definition of the media or the press. Um, a lot of times, I ask my journalism students if they've heard the term watchdog. Um, or fourth estate. And um, usually they're not familiar with either term. But, um, you know, the the concept of the media as a watchdog of kind of our eyes and ears as people um, is at the center of, you know, freedom of the press and, and the center of our democracy is, you know, sort of looking out for the people.
2: And I think, you know, you bring up this point of like the media watchdog and when we conflate media to include all of these different media types like movies or ads or random social media posts um, and we confuse that with news, then like news no longer has that meaning or like journalism no longer has the, we no longer understand what, what role journalism has in the news. I mean, I think I've talked to students who when I asked them to define news, really are like it's just whatever information is coming across like it's not trustworthy and i think its distinction is is really key
1: yeah and the blurring of the lines is one of the factors that that we're really looking at um so um there's this idea of the media as a watchdog. Um, And another thing I find students are often, and other people are often surprised about, is that there actually is a code of ethics for journalists. Um, We tend to think that, you know, journalists have no ethics, but the Society of Professional Journalists has, you know, a very detailed um, list of ethical principles And uh, one of them is to be vigilant and courageous about holding those with power accountable. And that's really what it comes down to is, you know, giving the voice to the voiceless and standing up for the little guy. Um, That's what, you know, there are a lot of, you know, powerful entities in, you know, government and in corporations um, and it's journalists who act as our, you know, um, as I said, eyes and ears to help um, expose what, you know, bring to light what's going on with all those structures of power. Just as an example of kind of standing up for the little guy, um, my husband is a as a journalist, longtime journalist, and um, he was a columnist uh, for the Chicago Sun Times for 13 years, um, sports columnist and um, one of the things that he did was a series on um, the Chicago Cubs scalping their own tickets to their fans so he had under uncovered this and you know you'd have a cab driver who'd spent the night in line to get tickets to a Cubs game for his daughter And he got up to the front of the line and they said, Oh, there's no tickets here available for the price on the ticket of $45. But if you go up the street, you might be able to get some up there. And so they'd send people up to this ticket scalping operation up the street uh, where the ticket might be a thousand dollars. So cab driver can't afford to take his daughter to the game. And there's some legal, you know, aspects of this. And so, um, Greg really uncovered that, you know, and stood up for the little guy's uh, Cubs fan, who, let's face it, you know, Cubs fans over the years have have really been downtrodden for, uh, for many reasons. But uh, uh, and uh, you know, this was before their uh, their World Series win, so um, you know, it, it, you know, I think we forget that the media is actually supposed to be on our side. And when I say the media here, I should clarify the news media, Um, but it's about, you know, holding people accountable Um, and, you know, ensuring that the public's business is conducted in the open. So, you know, again, this comes back to the media's role in a democracy, you know, the government's business isn't the government's business it's our business <laughs> we need to know what's happening <laughs> um so you know there's some kind of basic foundations here you
2: know this always makes me think about um you know when we when we talk about news being unreliable i think a lot of people think about like breaking news and sometimes the facts aren't right but it is the like ongoing pursuit of of a story um, and like that investigative journalism that then reveals um, like the details later on. And I, I think about, um, I think it was in Texas, there was a hurricane and, you know, there's lots of disaster. There's a lot of coverage of that disaster, but it's only like six months, a year, sometimes two years, I think it was like two years later, that they discovered that like funds that were supposed to go to survivors of this hurricane, um, did not get distributed um, equally. So, you know, some people who are already pretty well off got plenty of money and like the most, the people in most need didn't receive any of those public funds. And again, it's this like, how is government conducting its business? I would never know about that. And and the people who are most affected wouldn't know about that either without these journalists uncovering um, this bad business and this bad behavior.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there are journalists around the world who are risking their lives to bring us stories that we need to know about, and you know, uh, and you know, I, I still have a bit of that hero worship that I had when I was you know younger, and um, decided to major in journalism. Um, for those people that you know, they are literally out there um, risking their lives every day to to you know bring the
0: story to us. Um, that's a really amazing framework you just set up to to show the two of you how you've shown the the awesome responsibility that media and journalism have of holding elected officials accountable, you know, illuminating you know transparency, um, letting us know of wrongdoing or corruption. And we're and, and you know as as Tish just mentioned, we're really busy and we have our own responsibilities. And so without that, uh, without The journalism playing the role that you just described, then as a democratic system, we'd be in in a lot of trouble without them. And so to go from the way that you've just framed it to the, you know, media being the enemy of the people and, and that that negative connotation and the lack of trust we have today is a pretty awesome uh, transformation.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, um, it's it's amazing to think about, like, I mean, obviously, not every journalist is <laughs> heroic. And, you know, some of the, the things we're going to be talking about are, are, are how the media, the news media is complicit in some of this distrust. But I think at the core, you know, most people went into journalism, thinking that, you know, they were serving the greater good, um, at least they did when I started going into it, I don't know if that's still the case. Um, but uh, but there's an interesting thing too, I think that happens with um, kind of um, this watchdog role, almost backfiring on trust in the news media, because if the media's role is to often be critical of those in power or to question those in power, if, the person they're questioning is your guy <laughs> or your woman <laughs> um then you know you're going to feel uncomfortable about that and there's this tendency to sort of shoot the messenger um you know because they're actually going after you know the the person that that you know you voted for or the person you admire um and so you know there's there's that uh, bit of like backfire
0: So you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you. If you're reliant on inside government sources, if you cover them in a critical way, you may lose your key resources for the articles or stories that you're trying to publish.
1: Well, that's true too. That's a little different than the point I was making, but the the whole idea of access journalism, you know, that, um, and uh, journalist Soledad O'Brien talks about this, but um, that, you know, a lot of journalists, especially in America, um, rely on what's called access journalism. So if you write something negative about somebody, you know, if my husband, Greg, was writing something negative about the Chicago Cubs, is he then going to have to be worried that he doesn't have access to talk to the players like this? Um, And so, you know, Soledad O'Brien talks a lot about how, you know, the the U.S. news media in particular worries a bit too much about access journalism and it gets in the way of them doing their job. But um, but what I'm really talking about here about kind of killing the messenger is actually us as consumers. When we see, um, you know, someone attacking, you know, the person that we are supporting then, you know, it's easier to turn that, you know, negative attention to the media for attacking your your person than it is to, you know, process that, hey, maybe this person did do something he, he shouldn't have or she shouldn't have. Um, so I think it's all kind of wrapped up together.
2: Right. And I think that, um, I mean, illustrates, we have a number of like national news organizations that are, are pretty, pretty good and, uh, you know, relatively unbiased. I w- I think most things have some kind of bias, but, but, you know, are really trying to report like the truth and the facts. And I think what, you know, what you're saying here, like we saw a lot over the last four or five years with, you know, people calling places like the New York Times or the Washington Post, like deeply, um biased institutions when most of that journalism that was happening was definitely not that biased, right? And so, yeah, I mean, just like, it's not false just because you don't believe in in what's being said. And I think that's, that is the hard piece. Yeah,
1: Yeah. you know, you have to wonder like, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, you know, today, (laughs) uncovering Watergate, you know, if they would have, And maybe they were at the time i don't know you know maybe they were vilified at the time to a certain extent but you feel like maybe today they would be you know um it would be the anger would be directed more toward them in some ways than toward what was actually going on which kind of pales in comparison to some of the things that have been happening in the last (laughs) Two years,
2: but <laughs> Right. Instead of being shocked at like what they've uncovered, we're like angry at those reporters for for telling us this thing that we don't want to believe. And like, yeah,
0: yeah, because it's hurting a candidate, a, a leader or a party. The coverage is 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 negative and critical of them. So then we turn on the messenger.
1: Yeah, and I think it comes back to like identity politics too, that when, you know, somebody's attacking your person, it's like they're attacking you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it's hard, it's gotten harder and harder to sort of separate that, that, you know, this is just the person I'm voting for. This doesn't define me. And we've gotten to where, you know, we define ourselves so much by, you know, the person that we've decided to vote for. Um So, you know, um, but yeah, so we've got this, you know, um, whole idea of what the media is or are. <laughs> media is plural, but it's hard to refer to them that way. <laughs> uh, but then you have this kind of um, erosion of trust, and you know, it, it has definitely heightened over the past, you know, four or five years. But it's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario, I think, too. Like, you know, did the trust in the, in the news media erode because of Trump, or was Trump partly el- elected because a lot of people had have, have lost trust in major institutions, including the media and government in general? Um, but um, the, the, the increase in distrust is really kind of staggering. Um, And it's a very noticeable difference between um, Democrats and Republicans. So um, from 1973 to 2018, the increase in distrust, it's kind of a double negative, but the increase in distrust went from 13% of people to 28% of people who said they had hardly any confidence in the press as an institution. And among Republicans, it went from 16% to 65%. So it's a huge increase. And it's a big increase overall, not just, you know, looking at it uh, by party. But, um, but you know, uh, so, you know, we really are looking at a major shift here. Um, according to Gallup um they did a poll just uh, last September that said um that 6 in 10 Americans say they either have not very much trust or none at all in the news media which is uh, you know mind blowing <laughs> um 6 in 10 Americans so i think like where are they getting their information that where you know if they don't trust the news media where what do they trust uh, and we're at like a record high too where you know 33% um say they have none at all which is up 5 points since 2019
2: and i think this raises these questions which i mean we're going to get into later you know why did that why has that trust in the in the media changed you know what what has caused it what are the like what are the things about us as the american people what are the things about the media as it it's different institutions, like what are all of these components that have like shifted over the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years to bring us to this point where we have so little trust in in the media.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a lot of factors kind of all together, but um, but the, the result is that this erosion of truth so it's almost like we're standing on quicksand I feel like and you know we can't agree on the most basic of facts sometimes which makes it awfully hard to make decisions or to decide how to vote on something or you know how you should hold somebody accountable if you can't even kind of agree on the most basic of things um so it's you know it's eroded um you know, uh, a few years ago, in the early 2000s, um, Stephen Colbert uh, coined the term "truthiness," and he said it used to be everyone was entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. But that's not the case anymore. Facts matter not at all. Perception is everything. It's certainty. So I think it's like this emotional component to things that you know. It's we're not basing things on fact anymore.
2: Lisa, when we were talking about this the other day and you pointed out that this was from the early 2000s, like it was just, it was kind of a shock, Um, you know, time starts to blur a little bit um, and I had forgotten how how early in the 2000s, you know, Stephen Colbert brought this, you know, to the American popular awareness and and to think about, you know, how much has happened over those, over the last 20 years um, and how it has only gotten more, more intense and more, are, this truthiness has like played out in you know so many different ways, to, and, it, and it brings us up to this moment where we have you know people debating the science of, of wearing masks about COVID, um, vaccines, things like that. I think is and it shows the consequences I think of this of this truthiness and of the the erosion of trust.
1: Yeah, I mean, we are we are living with those consequences yeah. in you know twenty 2020, twenty 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 one. You know, we are we are living with it. Um, Colbert actually uh, coined the term in relation to, W. Uh, Bush, um, uh, and it, the invasion of Iraq. So you know, it's it's been going on for a while. Um, Then, of course, you had Kellyanne Conway with her statement about alternative facts, um, and that was on Meet the Press in um, 2017. Um, in relation to uh, President Trump's inauguration and the number of people who attended, and so Sean Spicer, the press secretary at the time, had um, you know um, talked about the number of people, and um, and she went on to kind of defend what he had said, and you know referred to alternate alternative facts. Uh, so you know we we can't actually again it's like quicksand. You know what what. Facts used to feel like they were solid, (laughs) but not so much anymore, you know, and maybe they never were. I don't know. Um, I thought it was interesting that uh, Biden in his inauguration speech, um, you know, four years later after we were talking about alternative facts, you know, he felt he had to point out that there is truth and there are lies. It's just such a bald statement, you know, we need to understand that there is such a thing as truth and there is such a thing as lies, you know. So, uh, you know, I just thought that was interesting.
2: Well, and that, you know, that this idea of truth and lies or, you know, facts or alternative facts becomes so in like intertwined with partisan politics like that is so troubling, right? Like we want to, I think, be able to establish what are the the facts that we know, the things that we know, what is what are what is the truth we can stand on, and what are the things that we don't know. And and it shouldn't be just like, you know, the Democrats who are like, this is my truth or this is truth. Um, or the Republicans either. And so like this conflict, I think, is really I think one of the things that is I think deeply troubling. Like as we're thinking about this, like when we think about, again, these consequences for maybe this erosion of trust and the erosion of truth in the media, um, like this is where we're at, where we have to say there is truth and there are lies. That's kind of wild.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting too, is what you said about, um, you know, this is my truth. You have your truth over there, this is my truth, and we'll both take our toys and go home. You know, it's kind of like, we're not gonna ever, you know, get anything done and make any compromise or get, you know, move things forward, um, you know, if we can't, like, come together on at least that, you know, maybe we disagree on what to do about the facts, but if we can't even get to the point where, you know, we share a set of facts, um, you know, I I don't know, where, where, where do we go, you know, so.
0: Yeah, I find that as far as um, to, to have a political system, a democratic political system, where there's not a shared sense of reality and, and the truths, alternative truths, and um, that we each have our own partisan uh, facts, if you will, that's that's deeply troubling. And I'm, I'm glad that you pointed that out. Um, I I was wondering, and when you showed that erosion of truth or trust in the media, and you you know you pointed out um, Colbert in the early two thousands, and then the Alternative Facts in two thousand seventeen, do you do you see it as a has it been a gradual like year by year where we'd see a slope from the nineteen seventies to two thousand and twenty one, or was it precipitous in a couple of years where um, there was a a pretty significant uh, drop in trust?
1: yeah i'd have to look into like exactly what the numbers would show a little bit more but my sense is that you know yes it's been declining you know over the years for sure but i think there have been some definite you know drops and um when you have the leader of the free world or you know the president of the united states um basically calling into question whether, you know, news is fake or, or real and or, um, every time you turn around, um, you know, that has to have an effect. I mean, people have to say to themselves at some point, well, it's the president of the United States saying it, that he must know something I don't know, you know. And so I think that the last four years have have definitely, you know, Again, it's kind of that chicken and egg thing where, you know, distrust of the media was a factor in maybe why people felt they could trust Trump. He was something different. Um, he spoke his mind. That was what a lot of people, you know, appealed to, appealed to a lot of people about him, is that he would say it like it is, they'd, they'd say, you know. And so they had this sense that, that you know, he was kind of cutting through the Washington BS yes. and they in saying you know things the way they really are, and you could trust him and you can't trust the news media. And then he played that up. He didn't light the fire, but he definitely warmed himself by it, you know. Um, so that's my sense of it. Tish, do you have a?
2: Yeah, I mean, definitely. like the last four years have been like just a pounding on on truthy on, on the truth and and the media. But I think you know we we're gonna get into this a little bit more later, but um there were there have been so many factors, um you know, the corporatization and consolidation of of news uh, and media sources, um you know, thinking about President Bush and like the lies about weapons of mass destruction and the way that then got I think when our leaders are lying and and it's not, I think accurately portrayed as lies, like that ends I think, eroding just our sense of trust and maybe leadership. Um, so when that was coined, I think that there there were a lot of things happening that have influenced the way we think about the way our leaders are covered, um, who believes what, um, and, and definitely when we think about the way many of our news organizations have not necessarily um, like they do all of this amazing work to, like in the investigative journalists, I think are, are incredible, but the institutions themselves haven't necessarily stayed up to date. Um, we see, you know, takedowns of, of people in the media all the time, uh, the way they've maybe handled different situations. So I think there's just all of these, all of these factors, which we can get into it more later, that have like slowly chipped away. And then the last four years have just been a hammering, right, like that's yeah. the essence of it.
0: And I I certainly don't want to um, disrupt the flow, but I I find that the way that you framed the the journalists of having so much training, so much motivation to go into the field to do good, and then how do they contend with, you know, when you bring up truthiness and, and Colbert saying that he's bringing, it's essentially our gut, our emotion instead of our brain, Or more recently, you know, kind of the way Tish you framed it earlier, we're bringing our political baggage, the way that we interpret the 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 information. So it seems a really difficult situation for any media outlet to be in to contend with the consumer's Mm -hmm. own instincts and uh, beliefs instead of coming uh, Mm -hmm. observing information to learn. We're putting it's like a prism of our own beliefs and guts to to kind of filter through what we're being exposed to,
2: right? And I think the news media, you know, if we think about the difference between like way back in the day uh, when we had maybe three news outlets plus like our major newspapers, like that was it was a very um, a focused way of getting information, and it you know was very consolidated. In, in a particular way but when you think of like the range of news sources now talk talk radio um, so the way news gets spun um, over and over again in different ways depending on so it might be it might start out as the same facts but it gets you know depending on who's reporting it it's going to be reported in a very different way so I think that adds to that so we can find you know, the take that that matches up with our own interpretation of the world i think that's that's a piece of this right like you know i i might listen to fox or cnn or npr and like those are going to be different perspectives on on the same thing and i'm going to take away what i want to take away based on my beliefs and my my values
1: yeah it's sort of the the whole like confirmation bias uh, idea um and and i think you know just the role of emotion you know versus reason too it's like um and maybe that's heightened now because we are all sort of more emotional for so many reasons <laughs> you know least of not the least of which is you know a pandemic um and so maybe you know and and i think you have um you know, some deep seated fears, uh, in a lot of people that the world is changing, and they're, you know, there's a kind of sense of loss of control over that. And so, you know, it's coming back to these kind of primal urges and emotions that, you know, and maybe that's making us look at, you know, the information that's coming in and kind of trying to find that anchor of something that, you know, connects with something I already believe in. Um, So I think there's a psychological component to this for sure. Um, So while, you know, we can say, okay, Biden is saying, you know, there's this, um, you know, there's truth and there's lies. Um, Meanwhile, you know, you have Trump supporters who are continuing to say that they're in a battle for justice and truth, um, that Trump won the election and, you know, and no number of legal court cases, you know, I think it was more than 60, you know, can convince people that, you know, no, the election wasn't stolen. So it's like kind of playing into what we were just talking about, you know. I have this strong belief that it goes, you know, is at my core, and and you know, it doesn't matter how many times somebody's gone into court and said, no, this didn't happen. Um, It doesn't. It goes against what I already believe, right? I mean, I don't know. It's uh, it's hard to like. I keep trying to figure it out. You know, how people can continue to believe something when the facts say otherwise, you know? Um, So I think, you know, we've sort of touched on some of the stuff about, you know, how did we get here? Um, And I think there are a lot of factors. Um, I, uh, and, and and you know we were talking about whether it's you know had these precipitous declines or if it's just been chipped away and I think it's a combination of the two. When I think of erosion, I think uh, back to my time. Uh, one of my first jobs was as a reporter in South Carolina, and I was um, having mostly grown up in Colorado, was thrust into um, a beat covering um, coastal environment, which I had to learn about quickly in order to cover it. Um, I was, uh, and, and one of the big stories was about beach erosion and how these developments that would be too close to the beach um, would result in greater erosion. So every time a wave would hit that, you know, wall of sand, basically it, it was, it would like drag more sand out to, to, to sea. And so I feel like there's kind of a metaphor there for what's happening with the erosion of trust as well. It's like, we, you know, it's not any one cause, um, it's this, you know, multiple factors that have each like crashed into, this you know wall of trust and eroded it away um, one after another. So you have factors like um, money, of course, and we touched on a little bit just the media consolidation, um, social media and citizen journalists, um, Trump himself, um, there ha- there is bias. We have to acknowledge that you know, it's not, you know, not all journalists are noble and not all journalism is unbiased. Um, and then this whole idea of filter bubbles and kind of reinforcing what we already think, but so we were going to maybe uh, go through each of these um, uh, quickly, but um, you know I think one of the things in terms of media complicity is the blurring of lines between news and opinion and this happened you know since the time I was in journalism school. Um, you know, things were very clearly labeled and partly as a function of, you know, newspapers versus other sources of of news. But, you know, you'd have your op-ed page, which is where the opinion pieces went, unless it was a column And, and if it was a column, you'd have the person's mugshot with the column so you knew it was somebody's opinion. And then you had, you know, reporting, which was supposed to be mostly objective. And I think, you know, over the years and especially with the 24 hour news cycle, um, you know, when that came into play, you know, and all this time had to be filled, um, you know, news stations went toward embracing more and more opinion or analysis. And those lines just became more and more blurred. And you had people, you know, writing blogs, you know, so somebody blogging from their basement, writing their opinion, you know, is that media, is that news media versus somebody who has been reporting and and actually, you know, abiding by journalistic principles. Um, It was kind of interesting because, you know, Tucker Carlson was sued for, Uh, slander. And um, the judge ruled that um, his show serves as opinion commentary that is not reasonably understood as being factual, Um, and that um, the general tenor of his show should inform viewers that he's not stating actual facts, but instead engaging in exaggeration and non-literal commentary. But you have to wonder if every consumer of tucker carlson knew that's what they were getting or they assumed that it it actually was news and you know not and and it was actual facts you know do do we sit there as consumers and sort that out for ourselves well wait a minute so this part is fact and this part is opinion Um, I think as far as media complicity, too, um, you know, CNN is not without blame. And, um, you know, Don Lemon in 2016, you know, said people want to see Donald Trump. You want to watch him. At least there's someone interesting in the race. And so it's like this is entertaining. And, you know, so, I mean, Trump was a major ratings boost <laughs> and to the point where he was given $2 billion in free media time, um, more than double any of his opponents. So, you know, it, 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 is it, are we talking about news? Or are we talking about entertainment here? Um,
2: yeah, and this ties in nicely with, I think your next point too, like, you know, news makes money. Um, or like news organizations make money and make you know the profit that they need to make um, based on how many people are watching. And so if you have, if you focus on what people want, you are going to get more viewers. You're going to get more ratings. You're going to get more money. And I think you know we can't separate um, the media from capitalism um, and from like the media isn't or the news isn't always giving us like the most important information that we, we need to know for, um, to do our civic duty, but they're giving us things that we want to watch so that we keep watching. And I think that, that line, um, yeah, becomes really problematic when we need information to make good decisions. And instead we're just bombarded with a ton of information that's like wild and fun and you know entertaining, but it isn't necessarily useful or, or practical or true.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's where, you know, clickbait comes in too, you know, online. It's like, you know, I I, I mean, what are you gonna click on? You know, a story about puppies or a story about Iraq? Uh, which is interesting in that um, uh, Sam Zell, um, who was kind of an infamous owner of the Tribune Company, including the Chicago Tribune, um, when he acquired, um, Uh, several papers, including the Orlando Sentinel. Um, He was explaining his vision and um, a reporter from the Sentinel asked him a question. So Zell said, it's very simple. I wanna make enough money so I can afford you, meaning journalists. You need to help me by being a journalist that focuses on what our readers want and therefore generates more revenue. And the reporter said, well, what readers want are puppy dogs. I mean, we also need to inform the community Zell said, You're giving me the classic journalistic arrogance of deciding that puppies don't count. Hopefully, we get to the point where our revenue is so significant that we can do puppies and Iraq. So, <laughs> puppies and Iraq.
0: <laughs> it's, you know, to combine what the, each of you have just said with a comment from Jan in the, in the chat, it's almost like a trifecta where the um, politician um the media outlet and the consumer are all um i guess gaining or getting a benefit and feeding off one another that we like the entertainment um they like the ratings and the candidate or the politician likes the coverage or the attention to be in the yeah,
1: spotlight i think that's a good way of looking at it it's this sort of ecosystem of you know we're all involved in it and so maybe we're all involved in need to be involved in solving the problem, you know, Um, but it, you know, it's, uh, it it is definitely tempting, you know, you, 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 sometimes you just want, you know, the junk food, (laughs) you know.
2: Yes, puppies all the time.
1: Puppies, I'm definitely uh, clicking on puppy videos. (laughs) Um, It's actually come to a head. Again, here in Chicago, just in the last like week, so February 18th, Eric Zorn of the Chicago Tribune um, was writing about the fact that um, Alden Global Capital um, is poised to acquire the Chicago Tribune. Well, uh, Alden, when it acquired the Denver Post, laid off 70 percent, 75 percent of its newsroom. Um, and when it's, you know, it, it's acquired other papers and done the same thing to to the point where in 2019, um, 21 senators signed a letter saying, you know, a- asking Alden to not to do this. Um, they said, first, you lay off large portions of the newspaper staff. Then you combine or eliminate par- parts of the newspaper portfolio. Finally, you sell the paper's assets, including its real estate, leaving the skeleton of the paper incapable of meeting the basic information needs of its community. In short, your newspaper your newspaper killing mob business model is bad for newspaper workers and retirees, bad for communities, bad for the public, and bad for democracy. And, you know, I think a lot of us don't get our news from local newspapers anymore, um, whether it's, you know, the print newspaper or the website, a lot of people get their news from, um, you know, the TV or social media or, you know, um, wherever else, but local newspapers perform a really important role in you know, covering local government and being that watchdog of you know what's going on in your in your local government and your local community. So, when we're losing all of this local news, you know, we're opening ourselves up to bigger problems.
2: There's a great um, uh, kind of web. Um, I don't know, web's the wrong word, but there's a great um, image of kind of the web of, of conglomerates and the way like all of the different media organizations and like basically there's, I think six, um, like large corporate organizations that own like 95% of all of the news organizations that we, across the country. And it's really shocking. I, I think you can probably Google like news conglomerates and, and find this image. But when I saw that and realized like, oh, you know, there's like, there's a, there's a problem there, that we don't have independent um, news sources, that we don't have at least more of a variety. So, so what does that do to both the coverage and how, how news gets covered and then how it's presented to us when it's owned by the same like six people? And what are the values of those six conglomerates um, and how do those play out in, in the organizations that they're running?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, you essentially have a monopoly on information here, you know, which is not exactly what, you know, freedom of the press is supposed to be all about. It's kind of interesting because at the same time as, you know, that's happening, you know, we've had this explosion of information and access to information via the Internet, which was supposed to be kind of the great democratizer. Um, But there's sort of so much information out there now, that you know, we still want people to sort of sort through that for us, and you know, who's doing the sorting <laughs> and what are their motives? <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I think it's something we need to ask ourselves, but um, you know, this uh quote I think from, from da- David Simon, who created the TV show The Wire, um, and was with the Baltimore Sun, he said, You know, the next 10 or 15 years in this country. Are going to be a Halcyon era for state and local political corruption. It's going to be one of the great times to be a corrupt politician. It's like nobody's watching, <laughs> you know. Nobody's there in the you know state houses watching what your local government is doing. So you know, what happens when nobody's watching? Well, you know, corruption often really? happens. Not always, but um,
2: and Illinois already came in as number one of the most corrupt states in the u s so yeah <laughs> we need some local um, journalists more than more than anybody really
1: we do yeah um, and then you have the advent of citizen journalism um, so you had you know uh with newsrooms losing a lot of their people, you know how are they going to replace you know the photos I mean we have our own um Matt Grotto, who works in our marketing department, was a longtime photo journalist and worked for the Chicago Sun-Times when they literally laid off all their mm-hmm. photographers. Um, and so, um, you know, now we ha- depend on, you know, people with iPhones to, to, you know, send in photos and videos and, you know, there's sort of citizen journalism in that way, and then there's citizen journalism um, on social media and so but I think it kind of comes back to this idea that you know journalists journalism is a field that requires education and training and ethics and you know and you know confirm things with more than one source and you know how do you and try to you know a journalist's job is to try to get to the truth i don't know that a citizen journalist's job, that same way, you know, um, it's like I've got this great video, you know.
0: Can I ask your each of your opinion on whether, um, to, to in, in my coming of age when I was a kid? there was like three old white guys on the networks who would tell us the news each night. Um, And I guess the benefits is that there was kind of an agenda setting, that there was a national conversation or national kind of, most people were getting the same uh, news stories. Um, Whereas today with what you're describing with the citizen journalism and the diversity of different news outlets and reporters and citizen journalism and so forth, like maybe we don't get the cell phone vintage of of George Floyd, and you, you know, I can really find information about in, uh, content that I'm interested in. Like, is there? I don't want to over romanticize either era or criticize over one era over the other, but like, have you, do you see these as like a net positive? Like the, these trends, like are we better than where we were in the '80s or in a, in a different era? How do you view it?
1: I think that's a good question. I mean, definitely we've brought in more diverse voices and we are seeing things and you're right, like the example of George Floyd talking about being a watchdog, I mean, that might not have been exposed, you know, had it not been for a citizen journalist. Um, And so, you know, definitely there's some positives. and and like I said the it, the diversity of voices and and not just three white men um you know controlling what we see um I think there i would i would i'd have to decide or think about it whether I think it's a net positive or a you know or just a wash you know I mean I think there are pros and cons here, and I guess I'm focusing a little more on the cons, but um but yeah there are definitely pros i mean and there it, the the idea that anyone that everyone has a voice i think is really important aspect of you know the democratisation that the, the internet brought you know that we all have a voice and we all ha- can get our voices out there without this sort of filter i think is 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 a definite you know positive um but you know one of the the difficulties, I think, and Tish could talk about this more later, but um, it's just kind of how do we sort through all the information that's coming at us? Um, You know, one of the exercises I do in in my Journalism 101 class is um, I give them a list of stories that, you know, from the day, and I ask them to decide, you know, which stories should go on the front page of their paper. And so, you know, I give different groups different cities, different papers. So, you know, using your news judgment, which ones do you think should be on the front page? Maybe a balance of puppies and a rat. Uh, Maybe, you know, um, how how do you decide, like what's gonna get people to read your paper and pick it up um, and what's also going to give people the information that they need. And so you had those kind of gatekeepers that would make those decisions for us. And, you know, whether it was the, you know, the uh, lead anchor on the nightly news or the the managing editor of the, uh, or news editor of the newspaper, they were sort of those gatekeepers for us. And we've we've just kind of opened the floodgates, which is good in some ways, but it's also like puts more of the work on us to sort through that and decide what, you know, what's important.
2: Right. And I think like, there's so many positive things about social media, uh, the way the way we do see the world, I think, um, on the ground. Uh, certainly, like, I see things that I otherwise would not ever be aware of. And I think that's definitely a positive. And I think, you know, the, the positive, when we think about news media more generally, is that so many of these news institutions, right, the gate as gatekeepers were and still are mostly composed of white men. So if we can highlight the value of all of these diverse voices as they're coming to us through social media, and we can change some of that institutional gatekeeping to reflect more of, of who actually lives in the U.S. and participates in our democracy, then I think we improve and can maybe um, can support the trustworthiness of our media institutions. Um, and I think that's happening right now. Um, there seems to be a lot of growing pains. I think I read you know, uh, articles and notices from people who are calling out like the way institutions, yes. although maybe, you know, some ground level reporting is being done by people of color and, and or otherwise um, marginalized folks, those aren't the people who are in power. And so as we shift that power structure, I think we could create a much more trustworthy media. And I think that piece needs to happen um, along with, I mean, lots of other things, but I think that could be a benefit of all of the voices that are coming at us if we can also like move some of that into our institutions. Those aren't just citizen journalists, they can be journalists in our, you know, New York Times, you know, CNN, all of those other places.
0: Yeah, I think it's
1: really interesting.
0: I was just going to say what what you're just both of you are describing is a public good that we would all benefit from and you you just wonder who would fund this and how because those frontline. journalists and photographers that you're talking about who are getting laid off like how how do we change this model to where what you know, in particular what Tish was just describing like how can we get funding to make sure that there's more um, diversity in our news coverage and. Anyway, I, I hate to to disrupt the the flow again, but I, I find no, that really interesting.
1: I think it's really interesting too, and and you bring up a good point. I think there's a push now toward um, nonprofit news organizations, and you have um, you have websites like ProPublica that are doing really good investigative journalism, um, and are you know. It raises the question of: Is it even is it possible to be completely unbiased or objective? But you know, I think if they're not beholden to um, a corporation or beholden, you know, to one of these six, you know, um, controllers of of media. Um, they're a little more free to do the job that they need to do and to represent a diversity of voices.
2: Um, Yeah, and locally, you know, the Chicago Reader and Block Club Chicago are the two sources that have gotten me through uh, the pandemic. I mean, I feel like uh, I didn't necessarily read them all the time pre-pandemic, but as far as like coverage of, you know, what's happening in Chicago because of coronavirus or because of um, the uprisings this summer, I really like value that on the ground perspective um, in my city, local, not, you know, owned by a corporate uh, institution. So, so I do think, you know, the more we can invest, like personally, communities can invest in in these new sources, like it's, it's better coverage. I think for me, it was more valuable coverage than what I was seeing in other places.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, it kind of comes back to, um to money, you know, and how money controls a lot of what we're seeing. Um, Just as another example from from my husband, the journalist, um, he uh, at one point was working for uh, Fox Sports and um, he was an on-air person for their new uh, Fox Sports One network, it was new at the time. And um, so, uh, the news had broken that um, University of Texas had lost its football coach and the big money boosters said, oh, we'll just go out and get Nick Saban, the legendary coach at Alabama. And so um, Greg was sent to Alabama to do this story about how there was panic in the streets over Nick Saban potentially leaving. And he said, well, it's, you know, it's like the middle of finals week, there isn't gonna be panic in the streets. Nobody's gonna be, you know, out and about and up in arms about this. But they said, no, we want you to go there and do this. So his flight was delayed. And um, so they had sent at the expense of $10,000 for one pay. It sent a film crew out um, to get, you know, footage and interviews with people. Talking about this panic in the streets, and then when he got there, he would go on air and, and you know, sum sum it up and talk about it. And he got there, and and the film crew said, "Well, we're not getting anybody." And he's like, "Yeah, I know. There's there's no panic in the streets." And so, um, so he meanwhile had done some good reporting and found out that Sabin was actually kind of re-recruiting all his recruits and bringing them out, contacting them to to assure them that you know he wasn't leaving. And, uh, but his bosses at Fox didn't didn't want that. They didn't want that story. They said, we sent you there to say that there's panic in the streets because that's good TV. And so you need to say that there's panic in the streets. And so, you know, he here he is trying to be a responsible journalist um, and report on the actual facts. Um, and uh, so he had to kind of, he had one guy talking about it and he kind of led with that and then he went into the the stuff that he wanted to report and that was sort of a last straw moment for him <laughs> um and a moment that led to him leaving fox um because it's like i'm i'm a journalist i'm not an entertainer you know i'm here to report the truth not um not you know say something that just is good tv um so Excuse me, my battery is dying I have to plug in here. Um, so, you know, I think uh, the, you know, we can't underestimate the influence of money um, in all of these kinds of um, decisions. But, um, you know, coming back to like the training that journalists receive and the ethics, you know, there are these four kind of key pillars of seeking truth and reporting it. Um, which is what he was trying to do, um, minimizing harm, acting independently, and being accountable and transparent as journalists. So, um, you know, again, kind of the citizen journalists maybe don't get the training in all of those things. Um, uh, I think, you know, when you have good journalists, they can uncover really important stories as we've talked about before, but um, one of the ones that, that you know, really appealed to me was um, as far as the work of journalists was the story told in the movie Spotlight, um, which uh, was about the journalists at the Boston Globe who uncovered the um, the scandal around uh, uh, abusive priests. And um, the movie really depicts, I think, the work of good journalists in a good way. And it shows how, you know, they aren't going to run the story until they've got confirmation from various sources. And they do all this, you know, kind of tedious legwork. The movie does an awesome job of, like, making the tedious work look interesting. Um, But, you know, some of the work of journalists is, you know, just uh, plodding through, looking at papers and, you know, files and, and, uh, you know, tracking down people and talking to multiple people. And so again, I think that's not always, you know, I think we we feel like any of us could be a journalist, but maybe anyone could, but, you know, there needs to be some of that foundation of, you know, credibility that it can be built. Um, Yeah.
0: I, I just real quick, we had a, I had a comment about how the citizen journalists with a cell phone may not capture the entirety of the entire situation. And to your point, too, they, they, again, they don't have that training um, that uh, j- journalists do. So we are still, you know, despite the positives of getting some glimpses into some things that we may not have received before, you're still missing perhaps the full context of a situation
1: yeah I think that's really important and and I think when we talk about the truth you know uh, the truth is complex, and we tend to oversimplify it. We tend to you know say it's either this or that or your side or my side, and there's only two sides, but the truth is really complex and so you know part of what happens with getting our news from social media is we lose all that complexity we you know we get a tweet or we get a you know um a facebook post and we may not click through and actually read the story you know and so we get this kind of shallow feeling that we're informed but we're not really informed in any depth
2: um right and that contextualization um is so important for you know, a journalist to, to convey a story, but it's also really important for us as consumers of information, I think as you were pointing out, you know, one of the like the key ways of how we like determine whether information is credible is by putting it within a context. Like you don't just take a piece of information and accept it as true, you have to look at the larger, you know, a system it's a part of, like how does it relate to the other pieces of information that are also informing you about this topic. So it it becomes, right, a complex web, like that contextualization is really everything,
1: yeah, and then you have a president trying to capture everything in a tweet <laughs> and, <laughs> and and frequently throughout the day trying to capture everything in a tweet, but um uh you know and and kind of simplifying things into fake news and and calling the the media or the press the enemy of the American people. I think that's so dangerous. Um to, to plant that seed that, you know, again, the media, the news media are, are not the enemy of the people. They 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 are the eyes and they are us. They are the eyes and ears of the people, you know. So if you're saying the media are the enemy of the people, then you're saying you know we're the enemy, we're the enemy I don't know it's um it's just a really dangerous thing
0: to juxtapose that um, to 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 what you've you just said it's interesting that maybe the the anecdote to all the complexity and context that might really be necessary to understand something whereas a meme or a tweet can succinctly get at perhaps that. Truthiness or some other kind of gut emotional feeling that people have, and which one gets more views or attention or resonates with people?
2: Right, like those tweets, uh, usually, I mean, whether they're from President Trump or, you know, some other. Other person, like those are the things that are hitting our emotional buttons, and they're designed to do that. And that's when we react, either positively or negatively. And those are the things that stick. Um, and so when you scroll through social media, like there's that range of like, oh, this is great. Oh, that's a puppy. Oh, I'm so angry about this. Um, and those roller coaster emotions are also a little bit addictive. And I think it it becomes harder then to to take the time out to to do that contextualization.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's work, you know, you've got to actually go out of your way to to find out the context and the, you know, the depth, um, and we're not always wanting to do that work. <laughs> um, so I think, too, like, in terms of media uh, complicity in a way, you know, um, the media, the news media weren't always willing to call out President Trump's lies and actually call them lies. Um, The Washington Post made a catalog of his false and misleading uh, claims and um, numbered it over 30,000. Marty Baron, who just recently retired as the executive editor of the Washington Post, and he was actually played by Liev Schreiber in the film Spotlight um, uh, because he was formerly at the Boston Globe, um he commented on this um saying that, you know, he basically saying we should have, we as journalists should have actually called a lie a lie. Um we should have called them that from the very beginning. And um he said, you know, we were operating on good principle, and let's be fair, he was president, he was duly elected, but he was exploiting them. He was exploiting our
2: principle.
1: So I think sometimes journalists kind of walk it back a little bit in the name of fairness and in the the name of being unbiased and being seen as unbiased, um, they won't go for calling something what it is. Um, And um, another person who really talks about this is um, Christiane Amanpour um, who gives an interesting perspective on what it means to be objective. And she said, based on her her, um, work coverage, she came to understand that objectivity means giving giving all sides an equal hearing and talking to all sides, but not treating all sides equally and not creating a forced moral equivalence. And I think that's really important for journalists to understand that, you know, being fair doesn't mean, you know, publishing, you know, this person's views that may not be Based in fact and equally to this person's views that are based in fact, you know that that's not objectivity here that's not what we're going for so um you know, but I think sometimes in you know we, in the name of being fair and objective and balanced we we go a little overboard on that. So, and then Tish, you were gonna talk about um, kind of the overall information systems
2: that, you know. Yeah, I wanted to, you know, contextualize news a little bit within this larger system, but I'm also looking at the time and wondered if it made more sense to just kind of open it to questions. I don't know if we wanna do like a part two later on in the semester, Um, because I do think, you know, thinking about the media within, our larger information systems and how information works and how we respond to that information, I do think is really, really crucial for kind of this moment that we're in, um, given that we don't all consume media from like a couple of sources, that it's coming in from all of these different sides. We have people who are actively trying to create disinformation to change the way we think and feel about different issues. So I think there's a lot happening there. so um but i i wonder if if we should just open it up for questions
0: for a moment i i i'm i'm with you tish i i do think we need a part 2 um the one of the benefits of webex is we can run over a little bit and people can drop out without disrupting awesome. our conversation cool. i i know i have a hard stop at 11:30 um and i already see one um message in the chat that they would like a part 2 as well so um, if you're willing, then then we could organize uh, a second part to to cover that more in depth. I'd be good with that if you are, Lisa.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important that we um, talk about you know how do we become good consumers of media, and you know how do we find that information that gives us that context and that complexity and how do we, you know, combat this erosion? So yeah, definitely.
0: Okay. Awesome. So if there's questions and comments, uh, please use the chat and we will do our best to get to all of the questions and comments that we can. Um, in, in the meantime, I, I, I'll have a, a, a question um, and, and I don't know if it gets us into the part two, but it just seems like there's a, Um, a burden for amazing journalists to to be these kind of super journalists and it it also seems that there's a lot of responsibility for us as as being informed citizens and I'm just wondering the prac like is this practical um not, not I want it to be and I'm not trying to say that it's it's, um, it's not, but I'm just kind of wondering your sense of like, in this era of this information ecosystem, um, <laughs> what do we do? Right. Um, I mean, there
2: are definitely, and I guess this is part two a little bit. Um, there are things that we can do as individuals, right, to to help us navigate these information systems. Part of it is just being aware of how information works. And so that's kind of a a couple of pieces that I I was gonna get into. And then also what are some strategies we can use as individuals to to help us sort through all of that information that's coming to us. But I do think there are larger systemic issues that we need to collectively pressure um, folks in government, folks in corporations, to create good policy to better regulate some of this information. So we're bombarded with information that we didn't necessarily choose because algorithms have been designed to bring us information. And so when those algorithms are designed specifically to basically make those companies money, whether it's Google or Facebook or Twitter, problems crop up, right? Like people can use those systems to create disinformation and spread that people. Sometimes it's just like simple, um, the things that are getting the most attention get the most, you know, just kind of cycle in on themselves and that things become viral, right? So I think, think you know, how do we keep Twitter and Facebook and Google accountable for the algorithms that are bringing us this information? And how do we make help make that a little bit more transparent? And how do we design new systems? Some of the most interesting things I'm reading right now about, about information systems are people who are trying to rethink the entire infrastructure for social media. What what might that look like if it isn't designed the way Facebook or Twitter is, is designed? So I think there's these big kind of structural policy things that we definitely, I think, have to be addressed. And then in the meantime, there's all of these like on the ground things that you and I can do to kind of Help us navigate, um, but it's going to take both, I think to 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 move us into the realm of truth and in trust
1: yeah i I would agree with that. I think you know we're in a position where a lot of the responsibility has been put on us as consumers um, and that is a good thing. I mean it may, puts us in in charge in a way. Um, but we have to take that responsibility on. Um, and I think, you know, there are some, some shifts going on in the news media of, like I said, some more nonprofit news organizations. I see, you know, the, the junk food, you know, aggregator sites are kind of starting to hire reputable journalists again. And, you know, wow. Um, So I think it's just been this shifting landscape and, you know, hopefully we're going to find our way to the other side of it and, and, you know, using my metaphors there, but uh, (laughs) but we're going to find our way to solid ground again, I guess.
0: I was also wondering about um, other politicians and, and, and the way that they could hijack media attention. It seems that there's a few savvy people um who are currently in office who are pretty adept at either using social media or other ways of, of kind of gaining attention in a kind of sensational way and it it doesn't seem like um, journalists have fully adapted to that of like what becomes newsworthy and what should be covered um, and so trying to think of a way to ask this um Concisely, but like, how do they how do they learn from you know savvy politicians who might be engaging in behavior just to get coverage?
2: I mean, I think that goes back to to um, this idea that of ratings, because the politicians who are doing the things and, and getting covered, like they're they're successful because um, people want to see that. Right, or or at least we're trained in some ways trained to want us to see that, but that drama or that those tactics are the things that pull in viewers. And I think there has to be some separation then for you know, like if news media is really run because of money and like how many viewers you're gonna get, I don't think there's gonna be a shift in that. At least I think that relationship's too tied together. Um, one of the things uh, I've been reading about is the attention economy. So again, that kind of falls back on us, but maybe it's also something that we can pressure our pressure journalists or pressure government officials, pressure all kinds of people to, to really reconsider is like, where are we putting our attention? And and if people are making money from our attention, is there some way we can push back and say, uh, that's you're not going to get my money because I'm not going to pay attention to that. Um, I mean, I think that the attention economy is a little bit more complex than that, but I think that's one
0: component that I think of. Like a scarce resource. Right.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, you know, journalists are human, too, and so... You know, we're we're probably you know we, we're attracted by the shiny objects, um, you know, just as much as anyone else. Um, but you know, I think it's it's about like, I think we have to have good training programs. We have to have good journalism programs in colleges and um, and try to get students to recognize and pursue the the real stories and not just those things that are uh, attention-grabbing.
0: So we're definitely doing a part two. Um, and um, I, I look forward to that and we will set up a time um, that works with our, our panel members um, and uh, we will share that um, with, with everyone. Um, but I, I wanted to invite our, our panel members, um, Lisa and Tish, are there, are there final comments? Um, that you would like to make um, based on what we've covered and, and where we're headed next time?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as I said, we're, we're sort of in a position to need to become better media consumers um, ourselves. And so, you know, we each have a responsibility Uh, as citizens, and we're, you know, this is the democracy commitment, you know, we, we have a responsibility to seek out truth and to evaluate and know when we're being manipulated, when, you know, things are, you know, we're getting a junk food diet instead of, you know, vegetables and things we ought to have in terms of our information diet, and to try to find the complexity and the context and, um, you know, I know Tish has some great strategies to to help us do that. so um, in part two she'll she'll delve into that.
2: Yeah, and I, I think you know, just remembering um, the complexity of of truth um, might help us slow down. So again, there's these emotional components that often like um, attract us to different kinds of information. But if we can slow down, Um, and think through our reactions, and then we can contextualize that information um, and find some ways to like verify it. And it does take time. It's it's a little bit more work for us, but I think until we have these larger systemic changes that I think would be really, that are important for us to to push for, um, until we see that, I think we can take some action and really push back against Kind of all of this media that's coming at us, and and take that time to to verify and and find that truth, um, and find those facts, and really make choices and decisions about the world around us based in in being informed rather than just wild information. So so when, if you're feeling like this, looking at your social media feed, just shut it, uh, slow it down, um, and I think that'll help a lot.
1: Yeah, and just one last thing, um, one of my students, um, Carolyn Thill, who is the editor-in-chief of the Glacier, um, really had an idea that um, there ought to be a course that's required um, that is, you know, kind of in digital literacy and in, um, you know, how to do exactly these things that we're, we're saying people need to do, and I think that's a good idea, you know I mean we uh, we you know it's it's a real need for everyone, not just journalists, not for not just um, you know it, it's it's a need that we all have to be able to understand the information that's coming at us and make those responsible decisions based on it so um, so yeah.
0: Yeah, it's it's really a, a public good and 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 it needs to be supported in as we were talking about earlier with the funding models, but also from creating the, you know, um, requirements or incentives um, to make sure that we as students or as citizens are, are, are getting prepared to, to, to exist in this this uh, current uh, media information ecosystem. And, You know I I really want to thank um, Lisa and Tish for all of their insight today it was very informative and uh, very well prepared and just for your graciousness of willingness to have a part two considering um, you know that you've already volunteered so much of your time so I really want to thank both of you and uh, I want to thank the participants and and people who uh, contributed to the chat and stay tuned uh, for part two. And thank Thank you again. Thank
2: Thank you. you.